You know, I'll never forget, there was a time in high school. I was up with my friends and we were skiing. And I had gone with him and his brother and his sister. And we'd gone up in their vehicle. They had, at the time, a a big white 15-passenger van. And we had gone up to the mountains in their vehicle, spent the whole day skiing. It's a wonderful day. We had a good time. Always enjoyed the opportunities to go skiing. As we left that evening, we would stay all day until such time as the park would be closing or until we couldn't stand on our feet anymore, whichever came first. I believe that day it was the park closing. And as we left that evening, this was before night skiing was a big thing, so we couldn't stay for that, a storm came. Now, storms are not an unusual thing in the Rocky Mountains. This, of course, being winter, it was a snowstorm. However, snowstorms in the Rocky Mountains are very dangerous. Blowing snow, icy roads. The roads aren't very warm, so the the snow accumulates quickly on the roads. It's a dangerous thing. Well, traffic was slow. The roads were icy. We were in this 15-passenger van, and to make matters worse, the family that I had gone with had a history of aggressive driving, we might say. Um, They'd all been in a bunch of accidents. They were very aggressive drivers. It made me nervous driving with them on dry roads. And here we are on cold, blowing snow, icy roads, and my friend's sister is driving home on ice in a big van. You can imagine the situation with me. We're going down the road. She's speeding up, slowing down, steep grades, snowstorm, icy roads, large van, Takes a little longer to stop a large van, as some of you might know. She's hitting the brakes really hard. We're we're fishtailing all over the road. All of these situations happening, and I I can honestly say that of, of any event I can think back in my life unto, I have never felt more out of control in my life than in that particular situation. Maybe there's a situation in in your life where you remember feeling completely out of control. This was a situation where I was there and I was, I couldn't, normally on the way home, if I'm not driving from skiing, I'm asleep. I am out. I'm I'm wiped. My knuckles were white, clenched fists, holding onto the seat, praying, pleading with her to slow down the works. I've never felt more out of control in my life. I mean it. I was at the mercy of every ice patch. I was at the mercy of every decision. I was at the mercy of every other car that saw this crazy van barreling down the road, praying that they'd notice, if nothing else, that this van was kind of out of control. But you know, while it's uncomfortable to feel out of control oftentimes, feeling out of control or being Not being in control, may I say it that way, is not always a bad thing, is it? It's not necessarily always a bad thing to not be in control. Earlier this summer, my family went to Colorado for my sister's wedding. While we were there, we decided to go see Pikes Peak. Now, there are three ways that you can get up Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak is a big mountain in Colorado, uh, above 14,000 feet. Um, You can hike. We didn't have enough time to do that. You can drive, or you can take what they call the cog railway. Well, my family had been up on Pikes Peak before, and the time we did, we drove. 
it was another nerve-wracking time. They don't have rails on the road, the two-lane road going up to Pikes Peak. Windy road, tight corners, no rails. Cliffs, sheer cliffs on the other side. It was a fairly uh, nerve-wracking situation. However, my father was driving. I, I have full confidence in my father's ability to get us up there and back. It was fine. It was good. But this time, we didn't take, we didn't drive. We took the COG railway. And you know, it was, it was amazing to me. We stepped into that railway. We sat in our seat. The tourist lady tried to sell us a bunch of things. And we went up the side of the mountain. And as we went up the side of the mountain, I was amazed at how much I saw. I was amazed at the beauty that was around me as we were going up the side of this mountain. And I realized, you know, last time we went up this mountain, I was so focused on the drive that I had trouble enjoying the beauty. But here, I had no worries. I knew how the cog railway worked. I knew that even if the, the engines shut down, the cogs would keep the, railway, the, the train from going anywhere. We were safe. It was fine. I could just enjoy the ride because I wasn't in control. Because I wasn't the one having to drive up the windy roads or having to worry about who was driving up the windy roads. Not being in control is not a bad thing when the one who is in control is absolutely trustworthy, absolutely faithful, absolutely dependable. As we step into John 19, we will explore the interactions between various people groups. We'll explore the interactions between Pilate and the Jews. The interactions between Pilate and Jesus Christ. And then the interaction between various Roman soldiers. And as we do so, as we look at each of these various interactions this evening in John 19, what will become most apparent to us is that those who seem to be in control, those who want to be in control, and those who think they're in control, are not the ones that are truly in control. That though the Jews were getting their way, they weren't sovereign over the situation. That though Pilate was the official representative of the might of Rome, he was not the sovereign in this situation. That though the Roman soldiers had no earthly opposition and they could do whatever they wanted, because they were Roman soldiers, they were not the ones who were sovereign in this situation. And so what we're going to look at as we look at John 19 verses 1 through 24 are three examples of how God is in control. Three examples of how God is indeed sovereign over this situation. And I preach this message because I believe that this is indeed what John in John 1 and 19, 1 through 24 is attempting to express. We're going to see, and we'll particularly see this next week, how much was left out of this account. How much of Jesus Christ's crucifixion was omitted from John's gospel. And as we ask the question why, we know that there is a particular thing that John is trying to get across. Belief and unbelief. Light and darkness. God and man. These elements that we've studied throughout the book of John. And I don't think that John 19 is any exception. And I believe firmly that what John is indeed trying to express here, he's trying to show that though these men are interacting one with another, they do have wills, they do have free will, they do have volition, they are influenced by their understanding, by their circumstances, yet God knew. And God is in control. So look with me first in verses 1 through 7 of John, 20, uh, John 19. 
God is sovereign over the fickle masses. God is sovereign over the fickle masses. Look at me in verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests, therefore, and officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. We open the scene with Pilate scourging our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the process of scourging, we'll talk about it a little more next week, was terrible torture. The instrument used was what we might call a cat of nine tails, a whip. This whip had at least nine ends on it, and upon those ends, tied to those ends, were shards of glass, pieces of rock, pieces of bone, sharp things, hard things, angry things. So that as they would whip you, not only would those leather straps be hitting your back and the pain and the agony associated with those leather straps coming across your back. But then at the end of those straps, as those straps wrapped themselves around one's body, they would dig into the flesh, and as they pulled it away, they would tear at the flesh of the body. They would lash a prisoner with this instrument of torture, tearing his skin again and again. They place a ring, what the Scriptures call a crown of thorns, upon his head. And we know from other accounts that they would hit that crown, digging it into his skull. They placed a purple robe on him. They mockingly called him King of the Jews while hitting him with their hands, while smiting him. And the other Gospels will tell us as we'll examine closer next week. Prophesy, they would tell him. Prophesy, if you're God, which one of us hit you? We read in Isaiah 53 this morning a portion of that account that the prophets diligently inquired as to the time of when the suffering and the glory of Messiah would be revealed. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way and the Lord hath laid upon Him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. The scene would have been horrible by any standard. How much worse was it that this was Jesus Christ? That this was a man free from sin, innocent before God and man and the very God of the universe, the Word made flesh, who bore such torture. Now this treatment was rather common In Roman society, officers of the court would often order such torture and embarrassment for those who, whether guilty or innocent, needed a reminder of 
who was in charge. You recall this morning in our morning service as we read in Acts 18 the account of Paul in Corinth. You remember that the Jews in the synagogue brought Paul before Gallio and accused him of insurrection. And Gallio didn't want to hear it. And he was sick of these Jews causing trouble. And so he said, I don't even want to hear it. And he sent them away. But then the Romans took, you recall the chief of the synagogue, Sosthenes, and brought him in and says that they scourged him. They were sick of the Jews causing trouble, so they beat the Jews' leader. Quit causing trouble. We're going to beat you to tell you to quit this. To not do this anymore. So this was, if you will, standard operating procedure. In verse 4, following the scourging, Pilate presents Jesus before the multitudes. And he says, second half of verse 4, Behold, I bring Him forth to you, that ye may know that I find no fault with Him. I'm bringing Him forth. You find no fault with Him. They saw what Pilate had done to Him. They saw that He had been beaten. They saw the crown of thorns. They saw the purple robe. He had been mocked. He had been smitten. He had been uh, uh, mocked and scourged. And He said, Behold the man. Look at the man. Look what I've done to him. He has done nothing wrong and look what I've done to him anyway because you've got some bug that says this guy's got to suffer so look what I've done. I've done it for you and only for you because he's not guilty of anything. Behold the man. Look at him. He appeased the people by beating Jesus Christ. Now what Pilate was doing was at the behest of a fickle crowd that was being manipulated by the chief priests and scribes and rulers of the day. He was capitulating to the demands of the people who were under the thumb of these chief priests that were riling them up. Afraid that Jesus' beating uh, might appease the multitudes, the chief priests cried out, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Inciting this fickle mob to push so that there would be no end in just a beating or in a scourging, but the end would have to be the death of the cross. Now, crucifixion was a big deal even to the Roman Empire. This was a major deal, particularly for a man who had no credible evidence against him. But as we read Isaiah 53, what you need to understand and what we need to understand is that though Pilate did his best to, prove, to, to appease the fickle mass, the prophecy of Isaiah was going to come to pass. Reading an event like this reminds me a great deal of the society we live in today as we drift farther away from the constitutional republic that our forefathers put in place, as we move closer to a socialistic democracy, we see how easy it is for a small vocal group of men to rile up a mob of angry people to get their way, do we not? By and large, the, the crowd is ignorant. And it takes a very small but vocal minority to rile up the fickle, ignorant masses to get their way. We see race baiters rile up specific ethnicities for foolish reasons. We see men exploit confused and ignorant politics, 
confused and ignorant religious and ethical ideologies to engage in protests, both violent and nonviolent, that endeavor to manipulate the masses into following the whims of a very small but vocal group of people. And this is what we see here in John 19. And this is what we see every day. Has it ever been a wonder to you that just two days earlier, Jesus Christ had ridden into Jerusalem to the sound of Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. The people placing palm branches at His feet as He rode by on that donkey. And yet just two days later, this same fickle mass is calling for His crucifixion at the manipulation of the chief priests. We see it all around us every year. And when we see these things, be it in John 19 or be it in politics or religion today, it can be very frustrating. We see foolish people being herded almost like animals. Oftentimes in politics they call them sheeple. The people that are easily herded, the sheep, the sheeple, easily herded into whatever direction their leaders would have them to go. Yet as we see these things happen, see, John 19 can be an encouragement to us. And it can be an encouragement to us because though we understand that people are fickle, that people are ignorant, that they're easily swayed, that evil men abound who will manipulate, that we've been manipulated, that others have been manipulated, that people are seeking to manipulate, when we look at John 19, what we understand as we look at the events that are happening is that God did prophesy that these events would come. That though they are indeed a fickle and ignorant mass that's calling for Jesus Christ's crucifixion, God knew it was going to happen and it's happening according to God's perfect plan. He knew it would happen. This fickle mass has not caught God off guard. And so as we look around us and we say, how could people be so foolish? How could people be so ignorant? And that can cause in our hearts worry. That can cause in our hearts consternation. That can even cause bitterness, can it not? Have you ever felt bitterness against a politician or against a religious symbol or icon or person because you see how they're manipulating others? And you see how people are manipulated by their lies and by their deceit, and it can cause us bitterness, and it can cause us consternation. And, and look, I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to roll over and die. That's not what I'm saying, because that's not what the Bible is saying. But what the Bible is showing us is that God had a plan. And that God knew that these fickle masses would be there in Isaiah, and He had written down that Jesus Christ would be scourged and beaten and bruised, and that He would bear our iniquities on the tree through His own blood, And the thing that brought it about was these ignorant, fickle masses being manipulated by the chief priests and scribes. See, God is in control of the fickle masses. He is indeed sovereign. God is sovereign over powerful governments as well. Look with me in verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid and went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then, Pilate, then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have the power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Here we go. 
Here is Pilate attempting to hold the might of the Roman Empire over the might of Almighty God. Perhaps the fickle crowd, we might say, is not too hard for God to remain sovereign over, but what about a powerful empire? What about an empire as powerful as Rome? This statement that the Jews made in verse 7, that Jesus Christ called Himself the Son of God, worried Pilate exceedingly. He was already scourging an innocent man for the sake of these masses in order to appease them. But now he hears that this man calls himself the Son of God. He's much more than just an earthly king. Jesus has already spoken to Pilate. Jesus has already said why he's there. He's there to proclaim the truth and all those who are hearers of the truth would follow him. Pilate walks out and says, what is truth? And now he doesn't just hear that this man is king of the Jews. He hears that this man claims to be the son of God and he's worried. And so he goes back into the judgment hall and he brings Jesus back into the judgment hall with him and he says, Jesus, whence art thou? Where are you coming from here? Where are you from? Who are you? Who sent you? Verse 9 says, Jesus gave no answer. Silence. Angrily, he states in verse 10, Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you or the power to let you free? Don't you know that I have the authority, the word power there being that word in the Greek that literally means authority or enablement or ability? Don't you know that I have the ability to release you or to crucify you? Pilate was threatening Jesus here to get him to speak. He was holding the might of the Roman Empire over Jesus Christ's head, but it didn't work. Because, see, Pilate wasn't really the one who had the authority in this situation, was he? Notice what Jesus Christ said. Notice how he answered. Verse 11. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Sure, Pilate is indeed the instrument by which God would work out his will. Certainly, God had given Pilate the authority to pronounce judgment over Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, the, the extent of the authority that you've been given over me, Pilate, is the extent to which God has given you. Pilate was more fearful than ever. And he sought to have Jesus released. He says, you know what, I'm going to work, in his mind perhaps, I'm going to work as hard as I can to get this man released. I do not want this man's blood on my head. Verse 12, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. Pilate most likely could not understand these circumstances. Here was a man who had done no wrong, who had claimed to be the Son of God, who by his very speech and demeanor was a man of authority. The Jews wanted him dead. He had done nothing to deserve this death. He didn't want to kill them, but the Jews were so insistent. And here are these Jews. These Jews who hated the Romans. 
These Jews who caused nothing but angst and trial for the Romans. Pilate, as we recall from last week, was a man who didn't like the Jews because they were constantly stirring up trouble. So much trouble that in but 20 years from this date, Caesar, Emperor Claudius, would expel all the Jews from Rome because he was sick of the trouble they were causing in the capital of the Roman Empire. These Jews were nothing but trouble to the Romans, and here they are saying, we only have one king and it's Caesar. And you're no friend of Caesar if you let this man go. And so now he has the political pressure of Caesar. Now he's got these Jews who hate Rome on Rome's side. Nothing's making sense to him and he can't win. He can't win. Pilate was backed into the greatest of corners and he gave an order. And as he gave that order, Jesus Christ was crucified. Look at verse 16 with me. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which in the Hebrew, excuse me, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the midst. Even in this circumstance, we see that Pilate knew something was wrong. Notice what Pilate had written above Jesus' cross. It's in capitals in your Bible, if you have a King James at least. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. We know from the other Gospels it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that all the world would know the crime for which this man died. The Jews complained about this title. They complained because... As we see in verse 21, the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Don't, don't tell everyone that the crime he's dying for is that he is the king of the Jews. Tell everyone the crime he's dying for is that he claims to be king of the Jews. We disregard him as our king. We don't want him as our king. We reject him as our king. He says, what I've written, I've written. Verse 22. See, through all of these circumstances, it becomes apparent that Pilate was in a struggle with himself over this circumstance. To some degree, it seems he well knew not only this man's innocence, but the tremendous universal crime of putting the God of the universe to death. But Pilate was a man who loved peace, who loved his political stature, and who loved popularity more than he loved justice. He was one of those men that we consider when we get into our first Corinthian series in the morning, who was a man of wisdom and might and honor. And so he had a hard time humbling himself before a God who would call him to be foolish and weak and humble. And God knew this. God knew that Pilate would be a man that wanted peace and politics more than he wanted justice. 
God knew that Pilate would choose himself over Christ, himself over justice. God didn't make him do it, but God knew he would do it, which is why God raised up Pilate for such a time, which is why God placed him into the circumstances he did at that time, which is why Jesus Christ came at that time, because God knew. Yes, Pilate made his own decisions. Yes, Pilate exercised his will. But yes, God was indeed in control. So it is today. We have governments and politicians who seem to operate outside the bounds of law. Who disregard the rule of law. Who act according to their own agendas for their own benefit at the behest of their own glory and not the best of anyone else. In our own government, dishonesty and manipulation are so rampant that no one can't even perceive truth from error anymore. Except God. And though things seem out of control, and though all we perceive seem to be men working against God's will, all of the authority that any man in politics or any government or any empire has rests within the bounds of the authority that God has given to them. We must remember this. We must cling to this. We must understand this. So we've seen that God is sovereign. Even though the fickle masses, by the manipulation of the chief priests, have called for His crucifixion, Isaiah 53 shows us that God had a plan. We see that God is sovereign. That even though Pilate holds the very might of the Roman Empire over Jesus Christ, and says, I have the power to crucify you or to let you free. Jesus Christ says, you have no power but the power that God has given to you. You have no power. Your government has no power. Your empire has no power. Your emperor, your Caesar has no power except for the degree to which God has given him power. Third and finally, our final encouragement, our final lesson this evening in verses 23 and 24, God's sovereign over the small things too. We've looked at some big things. We've looked at entire crowds. We've looked at governments. We've looked at politicians. We've looked at empires. But you know, God's in control of the small things as well. Look with me in verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. And His coat, and also His coat, excuse me. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. For whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. A seemingly insignificant thing was happening while the King of Glory was dying on the cross. The soldiers who were in charge of this crucifixion began to take the clothes from the convicts, the clothes that they had stripped from them, and began to tear them into pieces, splitting them into four parts. See, they could sell that. Certainly, the, the Roman government gave a stipend to these soldiers, but they were also, these soldiers were given authority over these criminals. They took their clothes off. They said, well, these are not going to be any good to these guys that are now dying. So we're going to tear them apart. Each man gets a quarter of it. And we can go and we can barter this stuff. We can sell it. We can wash it and wives can use it. Whatever the case may be, they could keep it and it could be a benefit to them. And this was pretty standard fare until they came to Jesus' coat. The Scriptures tell us His coat was without a seam from top to bottom. 
Normally, they would probably rip these things along the seams. Easier to rip. Wouldn't hurt the fabric because it's on a seam. They looked at this coat and they said, let's not tear this one up. It's a shame to tear since it isn't seamed. Instead, let's cast lots for it. We'll, we'll gamble for it. Whoever wins gets the coat. Perhaps unusual, perhaps not. We don't really know from history. But they did it. And one of these four men took that cloak home with him that day. As you read these two verses in John, you might think, how insignificant. When we read the other Gospels, there's so many things that weren't mentioned in John. There's so many things that haven't been mentioned in this book that were mentioned in the other books. Why did he throw this in there? Well, if we understand what John is doing in the passage, if we see the trend, we've seen God's power over the masses. We've seen God's power over Pilate and over the Roman government. And we see that God as well has power over the small things. In verse 24, John quotes a passage of Scripture saying that as these men, they didn't part the garment, they cast lots for the garment, it fulfills a passage of Scripture. The Scripture that John is referencing is Psalm 22, verse 18. Let me read to you Psalm 22. I'm going to begin at verse 11. and We'll go all the way through verse 18. David writing, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me unto the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The psalmist looking through the eyes of Messiah as Messiah hung on that cross and that many hundreds of years earlier, the psalmist said that when Messiah dies, they're going to part His garments among them, but they're only going to cast lots for His vesture. And so here, in this short, seemingly insignificant account of four soldiers, we see another confirmation that God is indeed in control. Not even these soldiers surrounding the cross as the King of Glory died, were exempt from God's foreknowledge. Now this message, as any message on God's sovereignty, is not, as I've mentioned, at all intended to make us think that we have no free will. Or that the future is already written so we don't have a, a, a say in it. Or anything of the sort. I often give you the example of tomorrow's newspaper today. If I received tomorrow's newspaper today, I could tell you all of the things that are going to happen tomorrow. I could give you the particulars of everything that's going to happen. But not because I made them happen, only because I'm telling you I know what's going to happen. 
the Old Testament, we see this as well. God's testimony of His sovereignty is not in that He turns us into little robots, automatons, and forces us to do what He wants us to do, but rather that He, in His sovereign power, can work circumstances out so that what He desires to happen can happen, and that He knows it's going to happen, and He's telling us He knows it's going to happen. He's telling us it wasn't an accident by prophesying of these things in the past. He doesn't determine our choice. He uses circumstances. He doesn't determine all of our circumstances. We still have volitional responsibility regarding God and His Word. So as we close this message, we'll be back in the same passage next week as we consider the crucifixion. Perhaps you look around the world. Perhaps you look around at the men, the politics, the religions, the governments, the empires, the cultures, the societies around you and you would despair. Perhaps you would question God's ability, God's control, God's plan, God's existence even. You should not. John 19 shows us a circumstance, a set of circumstances where the God of glory died on the cross, yes. But He died according to the Father's will, in His Father's time, and for His Father's glory. Every person, every government has a part to play. And the authority that they are given to operate in this world all the way up to Satan, the very prince of lies, the prince of the power of the air, the authority that's given to him is authority delegated to him by Almighty God. And regardless of men and governments rising and falling, God's will cannot, nor will it be thwarted. May we rest in that. May it comfort us not only in our own personal lives as we prayed this evening about health concerns, about the needs that are surrounding us, but may it encourage us as we read the news, as we read about a government that's out of control, as we read about men and women in power lying and manipulating and cheating and stealing. May we remember, perhaps in a heightened way, that the authority they have is the authority given by God for a time, for God's glory, and for His purposes. Let's pray.